Open loops. Do, do. Open loops. Open loops. Open loops. Open loops. You must listen to the open loops, a theme park for absurd beliefs and systems of integration between the mind and the creative spirit. Open loops. Hello, everybody. It's AlterCon 2021. An open loops with Greg Bornstein. Conversations that bend. Podcast series on altered states of consciousness. Hypnosis, trance, NLP. Trance yourself to thrive. Hey everybody, won't delay this too much. It's Greg Bornstein here. If you want to know what we're doing in this series, go to the first episode. Came out yesterday. This is a series dedicated to what I love the most. Altered states of mind. The consciousness. And not even the drugged out states. That's what's amazing. This is not a series about psychedelics. This is the closest we really get to talking about actually using a substance, weed in this case, to help you access higher realms of self in spirit. I won't delay this too much, except I will say that Phil H. Farber, I couldn't believe I was able to get him to do an interview just because he's a legend. He is a legend in hypnosis and NLP and occult magic in bringing all three of those things together. If you haven't heard of Phil H. Farber, you're going to want to look into his work after this episode. Check out the book Meta Magic, check out Brain Magic, Future Ritual, and now High Magic, a guide to cannabis in ritual and mysticism. I had to talk to Phil. I had to talk to him about what he thought about hypnosis and NLP today. I had to talk to him about where does magic and consciousness expansion and trance work all intersect. And I had to figure out, is this pot smoking thing that is now legalized everywhere, is it good for people? I get all those answers and more. Here's Phil H. Farber. Today on Open Loops, we have a legend in the field of the occult, of hypnosis, uh, a meta-musician, a a meta-magician. Philip H. Farber 
the author of uh, the very popular uh, Meta Magic, and now, of course, uh, High Magic, uh, a book that came out last April 2020. Uh, High Magic is a guide to cannabis in ritual and mysticism. Uh, We're going to get into all of it. Uh, Phil, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, glad to be here. Awesome. Yes, uh, here's my question for you. To, To really go into this, what I've always been attracted to about your work is that you bring the fun part of hypnosis in in NLP out to the surface. You go right for it because I've always thought, hey, look, this stuff, hypnosis and, 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 and the trance work can bring people to places that transcend material reality. It seems to me, it seems that people can have experiences that are not just used to quit smoking and and gain confidence and all this stuff. Sure, it's a very useful tool, but you delved right into the mystical angle with it. Uh, At least publicly, that's really the work that you're doing and and advocating for it. Uh, Here's my question for you, Philip. What came first, the magic or the the hypnosis? Um. Probably the hypnosis. Um, the story is that my father, who was a physicist uh, and an electronic engineer, uh, he worked his way through college as a stage magician. Now, actually, actually, I'm going to take it back even further. My grandfather, <laughs> this is a generational thing. Yes. Uh, my grandfather was a, uh, he was a newspaper editor and a promoter. One of the acts he promoted was Harry Houdini. Wow. And Houdini was often around the house. Um, when my, you know, not when I was alive, but when my father was uh, a kid. And my, my dad was very uh, inspired by this, and he wanted to become a stage magician, uh, as well as a scientist. <laughs> so uh, when he was in college and so on, he worked his way, you know, he, he made his extra cash and so on uh, by being a stage magician. And part of it, at one point, I guess he intended, I don't know if he ever actually did or not, but he intended to add a stage hypnosis uh, routine to his uh, magic act. Right. So uh, um, when I was growing up, my house was full. I mean, there was a whole shelf of books on hypnosis. And it was all this crazy old school stuff from like the 1940s and the 1950s. I mean, some of it even earlier. And uh, uh, I, you know, I was told uh, as a child, I was told, no, no, you know, don't, you can't read those. I read everything. I was a compulsive reader even as a little kid and uh, i read the encyclopedia i read everything that was in the house and <laughs> totally. but i was told no don't don't read this book they're for adults and of course that just triggered the must read books yes uh, yes yes <laughs> and i read them i read most of those hypnosis books by the age of like 10 or 11 wow and, uh you know when my friends were, you know, uh, hiding under the blankets reading comic books with a flashlight. I was reading hypnosis books uh, and, and practicing on my friends in, like, junior high school and stuff. So uh, that's probably where that started. But it, it definitely was part of the trigger uh, of my whole interest in altered states and consciousness and so on. Uh, so I, I got into magic specifically, uh, you know, in, in the, you know, what we call magic with a K kind of stuff. Uh, much later on, uh, when I was in college, and uh, a friend uh, inadvertently left a, co- uh, 
uh, a paperback copy of a Aleister Crowley book in my apartment. And, <laughs> uh, again, compulsive reader, had to read everything. So yeah, uh, <laughs> and I was hooked. So uh, so so definitely the, hip, the hypnosis probably predated the uh, the magic by you know, a good I don't know eight nine years. Did, now, did you immediately see connections between uh, Aleister Crowley's work and what was possible from what you'd studied in hypnosis? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, and particularly um, I, around the time that I, I read the Crowley book, um, I was uh, getting involved in NLP, which is sort of the more modern end yes. of hypnosis, and, or it evolved from hypnosis at any rate. And uh, I was... Uh, I had been actually in college, I was studying, uh, among other things, psychology of language. And <clears throat> most of that stuff was, oh, really kind of boring stuff about grammar and uh, <laughs> uh, about how they, how they could teach chimps to use sign language and things like that. And uh, when I found the, some NLP books, I was like, holy crap, these, these people know what, you know, they're actually doing useful things. And... Uh, so around that same time, I started getting interested in magic, and right away I saw that you could use some of the NLP techniques and, and trance techniques from hypnosis to really engage a little bit more with some of the magical processes. Um, at the time, when I mentioned this to, to other people who were so-called magicians, I got poo-pooed a lot. I was like, no, 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 you can't do that. <laughs> And, of course, that triggered my, <laughs> my <laughs> now I must do it. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's a rebellious, uh, there's a rebellion that I feel that you have, no matter yeah, what, in all of I this. When people, when people tell me that, that something's impossible or you shouldn't do it or something like that, I have to look at it right away. And, of course, <laughs> many times they're right. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll check something out and, you know, uh, you know my, my parents said, you know, don't touch the hot stove. You know, I looked at it. I got near it. I said, yeah, it's hot. Yes. <laughs> right, but I had to check it out. Right, uh, but but in these cases, I would check it out, and I would see that you know, no, it wasn't really what they were saying it was, and um, you know, and and I was finding useful things in in terms of hypnosis and magic and so on, and and also the combination thereof. And I, I think some of my first, uh, well, my first book in the early uh, '90s, uh, Future Ritual, was really about the intersection between magic and uh, NLP. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is that I've I've always found it fascinating. And I know uh, you, you've had the honor of, uh, I, I don't know, have you ever met Richard Bandler in person? Oh, sure. Yeah, you I must have. Um, I did my master practitioner and my um, uh, my trainer's training with him. Right. And, uh, I, I like him a lot. He's a, he's a nice guy. Yeah, yeah, Richard uh, Richard Bandler, of course, one of the co-founders of of neurolinguistic programming. Uh, he he wrote the he wrote a quote for for your book, uh, Meta Magic. He he was praising it, and in general, I, he praises your work of of finding the intersection between magic with a K and NLP. Those initial books, that's what. Uh, I, I was talking to somebody about this, James Tripp, who was on the show. I was saying there was something in the early days, in the 70s. They were their Carlos Castaneda quotes. The title of the books were The Structure of Magic. Back then, it seemed that there was always... Even John Grinder, it seemed Bandler and Grinder were very into speaking about magicians and real magicians in the context of that early work. Do you think that's 
I mean, look, it, and and you can you can tell the truth about what you think's happening here. Do you think um, those guys were always into the occult even back then, or were they purely speaking metaphorically? What is your take on the magical influence in NLP even from the beginning? Well, I, I think that Richard Bandler, in particular, he was very knowledgeable about the occult, and um, I've, I've heard a few things that I'm not going to repeat, but. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, his, his interest in magic has been pretty, and shamanism and things like that has been pretty strong all the way through. Uh, they did, I mean, they did on the surface use this as uh, as a metaphor because they did like metaphoric stories and fairy tales and things like that. I mean, that's kind of part of the technique is being able to to do storytelling and use metaphors. So, so they're they're on one hand they're demonstrating the use of metaphor. Uh, and on the other hand, yeah, uh, Richard definitely had some interest in the occult and, um, uh, and was probably well-practiced at some of it. <laughs> um, later on when, uh, uh, I don't know, he started, uh, uh, I believe it was um, Are You Serious from uh, Mondo 2000 magazine who, uh, who was doing an interview with Richard and said, uh, what do you think of Tim Leary? And Richard said something to the effect of, well, I never really cared for Tim, but the guy I really like is Robert Anton Wilson. Yes. And uh, at that point, um, uh, they got introduced (laughs) to each other. I I think, uh, uh, are you serious? Just took took charge of that and said, all right, well, we got to do this. And uh, they became friends, and uh, uh, Wilson often appeared at many of uh, Bandler's uh, events and uh, and you know uh, Bob Wilson was was he was more about the magic than anything else and uh, so he would get up there and he would talk about magic and you know magic not as a metaphor but as magic and the NLP students would kind of observe and tease it apart and kind of understand it in NLP terms so um, you know it was always it was always a thread there and and later on uh, Richard uh, began teaching um, overt things he had he had some workshops he was teaching called uh magic and mysticism and things like that so yeah that's what I'm, i i wonder if it's gonna go there because in general it seems that this world is is moving in a direction where these topics are and, and you could argue i mean i'm sure philip you have thoughts on the way that magic and the occult has been distorted by the the way that people are spiritual coaches and healers and uh you know they're they're all claiming that they have these abilities and they can change your vibrational frequency and all this stuff uh so i wonder if there is more room in the market for nlp to really go all in when it comes to the magical stuff. I mean, do you think, um, you know, I think your work is a step in that direction, a huge step in that direction. Um, but what do you think? Do you, Are we all just going to be trancing each other out in the next five, ten years and have that be completely normal? Well, we'll, we'll see. I mean, first of all, uh, the uh, Sturgeon's Law applies. Sturgeon's Law is that 90% of everything is crap. Yes. And in any field, uh, I was actually just engaging in a, on Facebook in a conversation with a, a fellow NLP trainer about who was making the, the claim on his Facebook page that 90% of all NLP trainers are fake. And, uh, 
And I, I tend to agree with him, how seeing some of the stuff that, that's out there. I mean, there's just an awful lot of just bad information. And, but that's not limited to NLP or to magic. It's, you know, the online, it's social media in general. And uh, um, so what there needs to be is there, there was never uh, – Bandler made a few attempts to, to exercise a little bit more control over the field of NLP and, you know, good certifications and things like that. But uh, he, never, he was never really able to. Uh, by the time he tried to uh, trademark the whole thing, uh, it, it, the, the courts ruled that it was already in the public domain. Yes. So, so he was never able to do that. And uh, what happened was that, I mean, there's just this proliferation of just, you know, everything called NLP. <laughs> A lot of it just isn't. Yes. Um, so uh, the uh, and, and actually, right now in the United States, NLP is kind of at a low ebb. Um, we actually have probably fewer trainers right now in the entire United States than the city of London alone. Wow! So uh, it's pretty big in England. It's pretty big in Europe. Uh, it's pretty big in some other places. Uh, Bander himself is now living in uh, Ireland, I believe. Um, and uh, so there, there's some, you know, there's some activity over here, uh, not a whole lot. And I don't really see a, a, a plethora of new good trainers coming out there. I don't really see this. Um, it would be nice if they did. <laughs> I do see a fair number of people in the magical community who are really exploring NLP as something useful. And... Uh, I mean, there's people like uh, Andre Vitimus, or uh, who wrote um, uh, what's his book on chaos magic, right? Uh, and uh, Arden Lay, <coughs> and uh, a bunch of. I mean, there's there's good people out there who are in in the magic community. Uh, there, there's a group called uh, the Order of Emergent Magic, who are pretty good about uh, their NLP. Uh, so. Um, we are we're, we're seeing this. I think it's more that the NLP is, or the good stuff, the good part of it, is uh, it, is getting utilized more thoroughly in the magical community, and and we're seeing some really interesting things as a result of that. Oh, we're going to get into that. I, I want I want you to delve into what that is, but before you do, um, here's my question for you: What do you think? is the good part of NLP? What do you think is the good stuff versus the stuff that's getting distorted and just really watered down? Well, you have the whole, the whole NLP is lie detector thing is basically a lot of crap. Yes. Um, uh, <laughs> the, the whole thing, <laughs> oh, they look up this way, they're making it up, they look up that way. It's, it's bullshit. Uh, the, uh, and, it's, and it's just a, a simplified generalization of, uh, techniques that are designed to get us uh, trained in observing people. Uh, so, uh, when uh, let's see, the the real one of the real famous parts of NLP is those eye accessing movements. Yes, and those are really useful, but not in the context they're usually taught. People say, "Oh, they look up this way," but uh, what, first of all, the element there's a key element of calibration is that for each individual person you have to calibrate. Right, like somebody playing poker, right, you look for the tells, and, but you have to calibrate it. You have to sit out a few hands and watch, and 
know that that particular tail went with that particular hand and see that replicated a couple times before you really know that that's what that means. And it's the same thing with these eye accessing movements and other physiological cues that we use in NLP. People need to be trained in calibration. And once you have that piece in, it's extremely useful. And maybe you could use it to, you know, as a deception detector or something uh, at that point. Um, but just, just that, that gloss of, uh, you know, you look this way, you're lying there. It's, it's crap. It's like the old body language things where uh, yes. arms crossed means you're being defensive, right? When in fact it could mean that you're cold or your arms hurt or something. Right? <laughs> so, uh, Do you think you know, modeling, so, modeling is part of that? I miss, I, that's what I was always drawn to about it, modeling excellence, the, that pursuit of duplicating the results of ex- ex- people who are excellent at their fields really rapidly. Uh, I, I, it always seemed like more of a promise than maybe it was actually, well, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the, the fear, the fear, the getting rid of the phobia cure that was based on modeling exercise. Right. So clearly there are good models that came out and now are being purported as NLP techniques. Um, when people don't right. even know the origin story, but but I do wonder is uh you know could, what do you think about that original mission of modeling excellence in the context of where NLP is today? Well, I think it's I think yes, it's a good promise, and it's one of those things. It's a uh, something that you you know excellence is one of those process terms that you know when <laughs> when have I achieved excellence? Right, you, you're always looking a little bit further for it, and it keeps people motivated and keeps them moving towards something. Uh, which is cool. Uh, the the modeling stuff. I mean, you got to remember that a, a lot of the language skills and so on that we use in NLP were, in fact, modeled from people like Milton Erickson and Virginia Satir and Frank Farrelly and uh, yes, you know, these amazing therapists who really had a gift. And uh, a lot of it works uh, very well, uh, having been modeled in that way. Um, some of the, uh, uh, and let's see, uh, there's, in NLP, there's this sort of split between some of the things that, like, John Grinder does and some of the things that Richard Bandler yeah. does. Yeah. Uh, Grinder has this suggestion that the, the actual quote-unquote NLP modeling was something other than the analytical stuff that we do, right? When we, when we look at someone and we say, oh, they're using this kind of language, you know, this sort of sensory language, and these presuppositions and, you know, picking apart their language and looking at it that way. The NLP stuff was deeper. It was more an intuitive connection with the subject that allowed you to sort of step into their shoes, uh, similar to what we used to call in, in old school hypnosis, deep trance identification. That is, I think, the coolest part of hypnosis, Philip. I, am, I love deep trance identification. It's so right. interesting to me. Yeah. And, 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 and that's a real thing, and you can really actually experience what other people have, have done and thought and, and excellence, and it's not an easy technique. Um, the, <clears throat> um, the kind of modeling that, that's often taught, uh, again, by a lot of the so-called NLP people out there uh, is sort of fakey modeling where we go, you know, oh, look at this. Here's, here's the way he, he said this. We're going to use these kind of language patterns and stuff like that. Eh. You know, there's been some great work, though, in terms of modeling uh, great thinkers. Uh, Robert Diltz did a series of books called uh, Strategies of Genius, where, where he modeled Nikola Tesla and Walt Disney 
and Mozart and yeah. other, other geniuses of history, uh, Christ even. And, uh, and, and some really good insights in, in that kind of work. And I don't think anyone's going to turn into Tesla or, or uh, Disney or something by adopting some of these techniques, but you could pick up some of the skills and some of the linguistic tricks that they use and some of the, the, the trance techniques that they use to develop their ideas and so on. Yeah. So do you think, so then if, you know, the bad part of NLP is this this kind of faux uh oh well look at the i axis and q's or even i i think people consider it a big insight when they go yes uh well listen to the kind of words are they speaking in feeling words are they speaking in auditory words and you know some people will take uh teach like a full day on just that stuff the pacing and leading and the the really basic stuff i mean look uh first of all i've always i don't know if i've actually well maybe maybe i do need to practically apply that more because i guess there are some people that speak in those terms though every time i've listened to it in conversation i've gone yeah, okay, I guess I heard a hearing word there, but now they're switching to a kinesthetic word and others. So what am I even doing? I don't I don't even know how much right. this holds, um, which admittedly, Bandler and Grinder did say, even in Frogs and the Princes, they're going, this is not science. <laughs> this is right, not, right. we are, this is like an experiential thing. This is, you need to just keep doing it with people and, and then you really get it. Um, but that said, I know I'm, Opened a lot of loops there. Uh, the my question for you is this: They strip that all away for a second. I'm sure you have thoughts on that as well. Um, what is the good part of NLP? Still, yeah. What what is the good stuff? Who who is doing the good stuff out there? And and what do you consider the good? If you're putting the magic part away from it, if someone was a great NLP trainer, what do you think they are working with people to teach and and do to make the field dignified? Well, you know, we do still teach a lot of that, the, the sensory words, sensory rep systems, and things like that. But the goal of that is not necessarily to have this one-to-one simplified representing, you know, they, they say this word, they're doing that. It's to teach people to observe. And yes. <clears throat> the people who do that, <clears throat> excuse me, it's not COVID, it's just allergies. Okay. Uh, Good. You always have to tell people these days. All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, Teaching people to observe and, and to observe the minutia of, uh, of people's behavior is really the, the goal of it. And also, I mean, there's a whole lot of different ends of this. Um, being able to do things like conversational belief change and to tell metaphoric stories that help people to heal and make breakthroughs and uh, to do uh, reframes where you uh, can actually get get people to think differently, to put a different cognitive frame on their problems and to come out, you know, feeling better and healthier and so on. Uh, these are all the good things that we do in NLP, but they're not that simple, right? Yes. They're skills that you build up. It's like, uh, actually, one of the models that Bandler and Grinder used to develop the way that they teach it was martial arts. And they, so they teach it sort of like, uh, like it was. They demonstrate very simple techniques sort of the, the kata of, of NLP, right? Look, you know, looking at, you, you practice like, oh, eyes go this way, that means something, that eyes go that way, right? That's just, that's practice skills, right? And ultimately, you have to be able to have enough of that and to put it all together in a way that you freestyle. Mm. So, 
right. So it's not, uh, you know, if you went into a, uh, into a fight, into a street fight, practicing your, you know, your first day of karate drills, right, you're going to get creamed, right? But, yes. but if you spent some years at it and you have these skills on an unconscious level where they can flow and combine in, in specific ways that adapt to the circumstances, uh, then, then you're going to do better, right? You're going to do much better. So it's similar in NLP and probably in most other fields that I can think of. Uh, and, you know, but NLP is it's one of those things where it's the, the, all these little pieces sort of build up into, into greater skills, uh, but most people teach the little pieces as this is it, right? This is the technique. Yes, Yes, that bigger picture is um, so, it's, I don't even know, I mean, I, I, I certainly love listening to Richard Bandler, I, I watching those old seminars he did, and the ones that uh, are out there um, that you can still watch, I mean, even sometimes people put them up on YouTube, or clips from those longer seminars where you're just sitting there, and he's taking you on a journey. I've always wondered, though, Philip, uh, is something actually going on inside of me, as something definitely is going on, but I never know because I know that's something that he gets criticized for at least. But I wonder who's do is are the people doing the criticism? People that just don't really fully understand NLP because I've heard people that later say, "Hey, okay, look, it seems that what is happening right now is that Richard is getting up there, he's doing all these stories, he's nesting loops, he's taking people on this journey, but ultimately, uh, is he? Is there actually profound change happening in the?" these seminars um or does i guess the really the question is does unconscious installation work uh and is that what richard is doing these days he he is and uh i've had some experience having been trained by him i've had some experience of this that was sort of uh took me by surprise and uh, i mean he's he's incredibly skilled and uh, i remember there was one uh one uh, workshop where he was he was teaching us this thing it was called like hypnotic acupuncture or something it was this, this very complicated technique of doing something sort of like acupuncture on uh, thing and while he's explaining it I totally tranced out and I just I had I, I lost the content of it consciously and you know and so at, at the end of his explanation he says all right now find a partner and practice it and so this woman who's sitting next to me turns to me and says, oh, you want to practice? And I said, uh, I'd love to, but I totally spaced out, and I have no idea <laughs> what he was talking about. And, uh, and, and she says, well, just you know, do something, right? So I made something up that I thought would be hypnotic acupuncture. I said, oh, man, you did it just like him. What? <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty I funny. I had a number of experiences like that with him. So. Uh, he'll, he will do. He'll do crazy things like uh, he'll be he'll be speaking and to amuse himself while he's speaking, he'll kind of single people out in the audience and <laughs> and drop them into deeper trances. And uh, you know he, he's he's made the I don't, I don't I don't know any verifications. He's made the claim that he spelled his name out in in unconscious people. <laughs> I don't know that he's actually done that, but he could. I mean, he's, and he's he's hit me that way a few times where. Uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm paying attention to a thing, and I, my my thing. I'm kind of an analytical person. I was raised as a scientist, and I I while I'm while he's talking and doing the stuff, I'm sort of you know I'm listening for the the stuff, right? I'm listening. You know, yeah. How's he doing it? Right? Where's what are the keys to this? What's what's the 
the information, and I'm trying to pick it apart. How's he doing it? And the moment I start doing that, he's he like realize you know he singles me out in the audience, and the next thing I know, it's 20 minutes later, and, <laughs> <laughs> and I have some understanding of the subject, but I don't really know how he did it. So. Uh, yeah, it is It is the stuff of miracles. I'm telling you, if anyone of you listening to, to this has not heard a long talk by Richard Bandler, it is, it's so worth it. It's, uh, it's one of the things that keeps drawing me to this material. I mean, it really is. I, I, I want to understand it. Um, I don't even think anybody... I mean, he's done it in some books, and I've seen some people attempt to model him and figure out what he's doing, but it, it seems so deep. I don't know if anybody ever will. Well, there are other other good folks out there who do similar stuff like that. Um, uh, let's see. I, I'm going to refrain from naming names. I don't want to really plug some people and neglect other people. But, but yeah, but they, well, look. I mean, other... I, well, I was going to say you have a <laughs> you have this course you used to teach called How to Be a Megalomaniac, <laughs> uh, which I'm wondering is are there a lot of uh, public facing figures that are naturally good at? Uh, th- there have to be. I know there are. Yeah, sure. And you know, my my thing is how to be a megalomaniac was I was basically at the time there were uh, that was uh, when did I start doing that? It was like in the, in the 1990s, and there was this whole thing back then of seminars of like you know how to get more money and how to get more women, yes. and how to get more of this and that and the other thing. And basically, I sort of distilled that into you know how to be a megalomaniac, right? Uh, <laughs> yes. All of those things were basically appealing to people's avarice and greed and, you know, sort of some of that 90s, you know, headspace that people were in. And uh, uh, so I was basically spoofing a lot of that. Um, and my, my ultimate takeaway from the thing was that I was basically teaching people how to defend themselves from the, the unscrupulous practices that people were doing in terms of advertising and, uh, you know, uh, gurus who... Uh, sucking, you know, unsuspecting people and so on. Uh, so I was sort of picking, picking some of that apart and exposing it and, uh, and basically giving people tools to defend themselves rather than necessary. I don't know anyone who took my course and went out and started their own cult or, uh, <laughs> or, or actually took over the world. Well, you know, it's interesting that guy, uh, Keith Raniere from uh, Nixium, who, you know, got busted for for the whole starting that cult in upstate New York. Um, I believe a lot of the stuff he was teaching and executive success programs seems like it's NLP. Uh, Actually, I think one of the women, the woman who co-founded it with him was an NLP trainer. They talk about it in a lot of those documentaries. Um, I mean, I feel like that's a great example of somebody taking these teachings and completely abusing them for selfish means. Right, and, and, and we certainly have a history of that in the United States. Uh, Robert, one of Robert Anton Wilson's uh, comments about L. Ron Hubbard was that he took the techniques of magic that Crowley had designed to free people's minds and used them to enslave people's minds. Interesting. Wow, yeah, that so, is so I think, fascinating. I think, you know, we do some of that in the, you know... In, in terms of NLP, and uh, I mean, I, I watch—I don't watch that much TV, but I—but when I do, I see advertisement that uses, you know, NLP-ish language patterns and so on, and uh, and some of it's pretty crappy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, some of it, it's it's uh, you know, uh, supporting uh, out-of-control consumer culture and so on. So, 
<clears throat> you know, we, we uh, you, you, you do see it happening. <clears throat> um, one of the one of the problems with this is that you got to remember that a lot of the language patterns were modeled from an effective speaker. So there are people who do this stuff naturally. So sometimes we say, oh, so and so was using NLP. Like maybe maybe not, but you know they're they're certainly using language patterns that we can use NLP to identify. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. You must have seen that thing that came out that the the clearly somebody that wasn't a Democrat who broke down Obama's speeches or one of Obama's right. speeches and broke down language pattern by language pattern. And I'm going, I do not think that this person i do not think barack obama is richard bandler um that that is just an outrageous claim to think that everybody is yeah there is a there is a taboo thing about nlp people think it is mind manipulation and there there is a dark side to all of it too that is uh i i think still rampant in the culture for some reason yeah and you know yes and i actually know the person who wrote that thing about Obama. And, and yes, I, I, I agree with you fully. It's basically what they were doing when they were using NLP to identify the language patterns, but you could do that with anybody's language. And I really don't think uh, Obama had been trained in NLP, whereas uh, he did have a fair number of cognitive scientists on his, uh, on his payroll during the, uh, the elections, and, but they did more stuff about the, I don't know, the, the logistics of campaigning rather than necessarily the languaging of it. But you do have people like, uh, who are involved in uh, politics, like on the, uh, the conservative side, you have Frank Luntz, who's, yes. who's a cognitive scientist who's definitely using NLP-style things in, uh, in, uh, to create language reframes, death panels, and so on, you know, the, the kinds of word choices that he's, uh, he's created rather than the, the actual things that they are. Right? But they catch on. They become viral. Yeah. Uh, on the on the on the liberal side, you have George Lakoff, who uh, again another cognitive science scientist who actually does have a bit of an NLP background, although he's uh, I don't know he's more one of the source materials for NLP, uh, and it talks about metaphors and framing. He wrote Metaphors We Live By and so on. Um, so, yeah. so you do some of this is going on, but it's not this nefarious conspiracy and NLP isn't just this blanket mind control kind of thing uh it's it's skillful use of language and behavior yeah what about magic in terms of uh nefarious things i mean that is uh, in a way i think that your work is um making magic much more tangible for people especially when you're connecting it to something that is as brain-based, uh, seemingly as brain-based, as uh, neuro-linguistic programming. Uh, do you, what is your relationship to the term magic as a whole, as it relates to the entire occult field, which, of course, is also associated with nefarious things, including everything that conspiracy theorists think uh, liberals are doing and the Hollywood celebrities and all this stuff. Um, you know, it, 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 it get, magic gets a very bad rap. It definitely does. What, what, are, your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, let, let me just finish my dose of adrenochrome here. And I'll, 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 <laughs> okay, uh, great. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, magic in... Crowley's definition, I mean, there's, everybody's got their own little definition, right? Every, and there's so many different schools of magic. Uh, again, it's one of these things that doesn't really have a, uh, you know, 
there's no regulatory thing. There's no there's no organization overseeing it all to make sure we're all on the same page. Uh, so some of the things people call magic are not what other people call it. Um, Crowley's definition was the widest. He said magic is the science and art of causing change in conformity with will. And that's you know, and basically he said any successful act is an act of magic. Right. So. It's basically using your behavior and, and skill to get a result. And now it gets into, you know, some people have that, you know, magic is only that paranormal part of whatever it is, right? It's the, it's yes. the things we can't explain or so on. Um, you know, then, then we could bring up, uh, you know, Arthur C. Clarke's famous, you know, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And so we're actually talking more about that, about the technology. And even some of this stuff, um, the very ancient things that people were doing, uh, you know, in ancient Egypt and so on, they probably had more of a science or a technology of doing that kind of stuff than, you know, building computers or you know, phones or whatever we have. Um, so... Uh, We're reclaiming that term magic from the conspirators. And essentially, um, I don't know, Dion Fortune took uh, Crowley's definition and added the word consciousness into it. So uh, it's the art and science of of causing change in consciousness in accordance with will. Um, Now, the thing is, the trick there is that most magicians think of consciousness as something other than the common conception of it. And we're a little closer to, or many of us at any rate, we're a little closer to the idea of panpsychism, that everything is conscious. So, so when, when Dion Fortune says that, it's a little bit of an inside joke. It makes, it a little, it makes the phrase go down a little easier, but when yes. you look into it, it's still even just as bizarre. It's <laughs> <laughs> so just as broad, right? Um, so that's the, that's the widest one. Now, you know, we, we normally think of magic more as the... Uh, I used to define it as ritual technology, right? Being able to use the the very ancient arts of ritual uh, in ways that cause change in conformity with will. So uh, to create change, um, uh, let's see, I'll throw out some other little definitions that, that people say. Um, Lon Duquette, who's a, just a, one of our greatest living magicians, um, his, his idea is that, you know, the only thing I can really change with magic is myself, right? But then he says, right, uh, you know, it's all in your head, but you have no idea how big your head is. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so there's, there's some tricky little, you know, things that, that language doesn't quite get to yet. Uh, I don't know. We have to think, think of new ways of saying some of these things. Um, but in effect, yeah, we're, we're changing the things that are right here with us now, our own consciousness, our own attitudes, the way we think about things. But we have a connection to everything else. And by doing that, we are exerting our influence on the world at large. Now, I've seen plenty of very bizarre things happen (laughs) uh, with magic, uh, where uh, I I have not seen anyone fly. I I get that question, can you use it to fly? If it really works, how come you can't fly? Right? Well, because I live in this universe where 
uh, I live in a paradigm where I, I fully believe in the, the effects of gravity and so on. Right? Uh, yes. To actually change that in, uh, and, and do that, I would actually have to change, you know, to step into another universe where the laws were different, where the laws of physics were different and so on. Um, and then I would have complaints about, well, how come you can't land? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's the same kind of thing. We, we don't, you know, we can exert change to the extent that we are skilled and connected enough to, with everything else to do that. Um, the, the better people become more and more so as they go along. Well, then what do you think about claims that, I, I, look, I've had people on the show that have said things that seem to defy the laws of physics. Uh, I, I've heard people say that they absolutely believe that Aleister Crowley created the portal in that uh, that room in Central Park, that space he was in, and, and saw the little gray man, because they've, they've experienced creating portals and rooms before. And to me, that seems to be an example of magic and, and that that really makes no sense scientifically and defies the laws of physics. Uh, do you think that's possible? I think there was, I'm trying to remember the name of the, of the writer, but many years back there was a fantasy writer who wrote a book called The Door Through Washington Square. And I think that's where that originates. I think it began in a, in a fantasy novel. Um, really? Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Uh, that idea. But because but, uh, I don't, I, I have read, just about every, uh, I mean, uh, an all, not just about everything Crowley. Crowley wrote just more so than, uh, than most writers in history. I mean, he wrote volumes and volumes, and people are still sort of mining the, the unpublished parts of it to this day, many years after his death. Yeah, why don't you debunk uh, this, this but, stuff? I mean, this is interesting. Yeah, but, what about action at a distance? You know, he, was, he could make someone fall from, I mean, was that real? Okay. Oh, the falling thing is awesome. Uh, that's, that's described by William Seabrook. Um, and actually, not too far from here, William Seabrook lived, um, I'm in upstate New York, uh, William Seabrook lived just sort of on the other side of the Hudson from where I am now. Uh, he was a good friend of Crowley, and they were hanging out in New York City one day and, and walking along, and they're talking about this idea of, of influencing other people unconsciously and without their knowledge and so on. And William Seabrook said, well, can you demonstrate it? And Crowley said, sure. And he picked out some guy who was walking in front of them and walked came up behind the person and, uh, and adopted their stride, and basically he's pacing their walking. Right? He's matching their physiology as they walk behind them where they can't see him. And then Crowley stumbles, and the person stumbles. Hmm. Right? Um, so what's going on here? Is this magic? Is this NLP? It's an awful lot like pacing and leading to me. It does, but the person didn't see him. They don't have to see him. They only really have to hear hear him, hear his breathing, hear his footsteps. Oh, right? the this makes sense. Unconsciously presupposed, right? Uh, your unconscious mind has an enormous ability to unpack information. I mean, you can hear, uh, you know, a sound in your house at night and know exactly what it is. Oh, that's the refrigerator doing its cycle thing, right? Or, <laughs> right, oh, the cat knocked the thing off the shelf again and you knew and you know exactly which thing it is right your unconscious mind has a lot of ability to unpack information from very small cues so uh, so doing something like that i mean it's it's real similar to something that richard bandler would teach uh, in effect so yeah that's a good one but, but i have also seen and uh uh we've actually experimented with uh with doing some you know remote influence kinds of things and 
Um, I did some experiments. I had online classes a number of years ago, and um, I challenged them to, to create some experiments uh, that would demonstrate some of this stuff using online technology. And what we did was we, we created a guessing game. Uh, one of the classes used people's limbs, like I, if you raise, raise your arm or raise your leg. So there's four choices that could be possible, either arm or either leg. Uh, and you had to guess which the other person uh, was, was lifting through your computer connection. Uh, and uh, we had people from all over the world, so there were people in you know, different parts of Europe and Australia, and, and I think we even had someone in, in Asia somewhere, in Taiwan or something. And uh, 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 what we found was that the, the number of guesses goes way the hell up when the two people are in a, are in a similar state. So we had the two people do, a, do the same kind of meditation. Right. All of a sudden, their, their, uh, their positive results, uh, their, their accurate guesses, shot up like, like 60%, 70%, just, just by doing that, like 10 minutes of meditation first, of, of the same kind of meditation. That's interesting. And, it reminds me of the Gansfield, uh, or the Gansfield kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and, and you could do stuff like that. You could use a, Gans, a Gansfield effect uh, on the, the separate people, or uh, Michael Persinger did similar uh, experiments with his God helmet. Oh, uh, uh, what like is that? It's a, it creates a, a mild magnetic field uh, in the, around the temporal lobes and, uh, and, and creates an altered state uh, that some people, uh, or actually many people who've done it, say it's a kind of a mystical state. That's why they call it the, the God Helmet. Um, he has a more technical name for it, but that's what we all call it. Um, that, was, that was actually one of the foundations to what they do now call TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which you can go into a neurologist's office now and have TMS for various things to correct aspects of your brain and so on. Um, Isn't that interesting that so much of this stuff comes from explorers and and uh, magicians first? I mean, I, I do think that is something that a lot of people in this uh, community of exploring the alternative, uh, they get pride in when, when a mainstream psychology article, well, even in hypnosis, you know, as soon as all these articles, they... they post an article about hypnosis being uh, accepted in a mainstream art news source and all of a sudden it validates things that people have known for years uh, seems that way even with spirituality at some level and and some of these things um, you yeah, know the magicians are doing the real work yeah we're, we're seeing that right now with that that idea of panpsychism the, the the scientists are all suddenly jumping on board with the idea that that consciousness is a fundamental principle. It's not something you can explain in terms of something else. It's a fundamental part of it, part of what creates our reality. So, uh, so there's a, an element of consciousness to everything in, the, in this idea of panpsychism. And this is becoming fairly mainstream now in, in science. Um, so, uh, and, but this is, you know, it's mystical thought. It's, it's, what we, <laughs> it's the idea that, that animists had back in the days when we were, you know, banging rocks together in caves. Yeah. And of course, you know, the, the, the most common one being alchemy, chemistry, just it's, it's there. It's right there. Um, everything that kids learn in, in sophomore year of high school is comes from people that were trying to make, find, make gold out of nothing. Uh, 
Yeah. Isaac Newton was an alchemist, and, uh, and an awful lot of what he did uh, was his search for the Philosopher's Stone and for alchemical gold. <laughs> and uh, uh, a lot of things that are baked into our culture, for instance, uh, how many colors are in a rainbow? Oh, gosh. Roy G. Biv. I don't know how many are. Right, is, yeah. it, is it seven? You know, seven, seven, right. Roy G. Biv. Yeah. Uh, that's what everyone says. That's, the, that's what you learned in school. Uh, but really, there's, some, there's zillions of colors in a rainbow. There's no... Oh, that's true. Page, right? it's, the, it's like your, your Photoshop uh, palette, you know, right? There's X, you know, 16 million colors or whatever. The reason we say seven is because Isaac Newton, who was the first person to split light through a prism and look at it, was an alchemist who believed that everything was divided into the seven planets or the seven rays. And, uh, and oh. so, so we look at it, and we still we still say, well, that's you know, there's seven colors in a rainbow. There's a bunch of things like that that are baked into our concept of reality that are really just alchemical dogma. Uh, and it's interesting. It's a way, you know, again, like the accessing cues in NLP. It's a way to start observing, right? It's a way to to look at something and to see that yes, there's different colors, right? But then when we get into it more, then we see that they're not separate. They're they blend into each other, and wherever you, you want to mark the spot on the rainbow, it's another thing. So, so yeah, I mean, that's, you know, the whole, that field of optics <laughs> that grew out of that is... Yeah, that's actually, that's a really good point. So then, you know, to bring it back to magic, in terms of what you have seen, I mean, obviously that, that uh, the remote influence thing is pretty cool. Um, what about in general, I mean, hmm... It, what's what's intriguing to me, Philip, is that you do teeter on the line between what is really possible, which which makes me go, oh, okay, maybe maybe there is a little bit of paranormal stuff going on here, but at the same time, you're going, yeah, but you can't defy the law of physics. Um, so I guess where uh, when when you say magical, what's the most magical thing you've seen? Oh, my God. I mean, I have been in situations where myself and other observers saw things moving, flying through the air of their own accord um, <laughs> uh, uh, a number of times uh, on that regard. Um, we've, I've seen information from what we would call discorporate beings, if you want, being incredibly accurate and surprisingly so. Um, I've seen people possessed by by entities of various sorts. I've, you know, taken part in voodoo rituals and things like that. Oh. Now, do those things do want... Now, what, what's the difference between those things in terms of defying the laws of physics versus you saying there's no way you could fly? Well, the difference is that these... Are, I'm sure that they... I don't think there's anything supernatural. I think these are aspects of our reality that we have not yet explored. Okay. Uh, the laws of physics are... They're kind of they're baked into our epistemology. If you could change that, you, then you could, uh, you know, you would be in a different reality. But you might not know it, right? Because the whole basis to it, right? It, again, if I if I jumped into that other universe where gravity was something different, and maybe I do, uh, maybe I do from time to time. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> right? But uh, but in that universe, it would seem so normal that we would go, oh, this is the normal thing, and it's not paranormal. It's not it's not magic. Right, and so similarly, the things in our universe—who knows? Maybe just yesterday we popped in from the other universe where, <laughs> right, yeah, uh, where we're all hovering around and, and uh, you know, 
but this reality would have to come with all the backstory. It would have to come with all the memories and, and, and the understanding, because it's not, the laws of physics are not a simple, they're not isolated things. They're all interdependent on a whole system of things, right? So, so to some extent, you can influence these things within, uh, within one reality. That's our normal function of magic and NLP and, base, and daily life is that we attempt to influence things within the, within the reality that we exist in. And that's certainly a lot easier and uh, easier to deal with than making big changes in, in our epistemology and in, in our thoughts of how everything is created and formed and, and the basis of reality. Uh, but if we did that, we might not consciously be able to know it. So, you know, for instance, all right, here's a good example. Um, have you ever had a, a hypnagogic experience, like one of those little brief dreams as you're falling off to sleep, where you're in some bizarre thing and you wake up from it and go like, no, I don't really live in Switzerland. Yes. <laughs> right? I think everyone has had that. And that's, that would be a similar situation where in that dream reality where you were living in Switzerland or you could fly or whatever it was, um, uh, all of the, the presuppositions, all of the information, all of the backstory of it would add up to that, right? You would, you'd be able to say, well, when did I move to Switzerland? And you'd be able to recall, well, I did blah, 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 um, right? But, uh, but once, you're, once you've popped back into your waking reality, then it makes no sense at all. I say, no, I never actually did that. <laughs> right. right. So what if these were actually real universes that you were popping in and out of? And there is actually a theory of that, that it, that it could actually be, that we're actually sort of glimpsing into these other possibilities and parallel universes as we, uh, we drift through these hypnagogic experiences and dream experiences. Um, but, uh, but whether or not that's true, uh, the, it holds as a metaphor to what would happen if we were in these different realities. Yeah. We, we wouldn't remember the other reality necessarily. If we did, we'd be very special people who were, <laughs> right, the, the, the mystics, the sages, the saints. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, this is all very, this is all very fascinating. Uh, do you, when you uh, talk about achieving new states of consciousness through NLP, which is, uh, well, it's, it's the, 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 the line below the main title of the book uh, of Meta Magic, um, you know, achieving new states of we're talking achieving new states of consciousness. What is I've always wondered what that means because that also speaks to me of of a kind of vagueness too. I mean, in the sense of this, look, I know that there's drug of choice. That's a that's a technique that comes from neuro linguistic programming and whatnot. This idea that you can re experience altered states that you've been in under the influence of drugs, LSD, all this stuff. And I've heard people talk about um, just hmm going into trance states and, and, and that kind of being when you go into trance, I've, I've never understood when people said, and you know, sometimes you can go into trance and I'm going, okay, so are we just talking about that dissociated state that you do when you go peripheral and you're just kind of like, uh, I, but I feel like there's something more there. There's something, it, it's not just duplicating what happens when you're under drugs and it's not just this kind of dissociated conscious 
this trance state that the shamans may talk about there's some there's something else too these new states of consciousness um and i guess my question is this what are the new states and how would you be able to know that you've achieved them if you've never even experienced them before well there you go that's that's a really good question uh first i'm going to give you a little secret about book titles uh about the covers of books the publishers usually think up that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair, fair, fair enough. It's, it's, it's more of a marketing line that the, that the publisher thought up. Uh, however, uh, you can certainly create new, new states of consciousness. You can do them by recombining old ones or by tweaking factors. Let's say you have a, a, uh, a favorite trance state in which you're very relaxed and you're, uh, you know, you're a little dissociated and you're, you know, you're spacing out. What if you wanted to, to be able to focus that on something or uh, to, to make it a little funnier or a little, you know, you can do that. You can tweak aspects of, of trans states and create new and unique states. Um, to some extent, we do that every time we go into a trance because our situation is always unique. And, hmm. you know, when I, do, when I do hypnosis with my clients and stuff like that, the, um, I, I don't assume it's going to be the same every time. I do similar induction sometimes to get people into, into a similar state. But I know that they're coming with different experiences, right? Even if, you know, I've only, it's only been a week since I've talked to them, uh, <laughs> uh, they've had different things happen in that week that make them a little bit of, they're a slightly different person, they're, you know, whatever, even if it's just a slight difference. Um, so it's always a little bit different. And the, the things that we consider new states, I mean, when you, let, let's say you, you take LSD for the first time, right? That's going to be a hell of a new state. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, but you can do similar things with meditation and magic and hypnosis and so on. You can, you can create maybe not the same as the LSD state, but other new and unique states of consciousness, um, particularly with some of the magic techniques. Uh, when uh, I was first exploring magic, or you know, some years into it, actually, um, when I did things like uh, Crowley's Holy Guardian Angel work and stuff like that, that was a hell of a new state of consciousness for me. That was, you know, whoa. That was as much of a mind blower as LSD. Yeah. Uh, that's a good point. I wonder if uh, me constantly seeking to have mind-blowing conversations with people is something that that state, <laughs> when someone suggests something in my brain, goes, whoa, like, what if I could sustain that for a long period of time and just live in mind-blowing? I mean, it makes me wonder because I'm going, well, I, I guess part of my journey is craving the stimulus, so I'm looking for the new book. Like, you were growing, the compulsive reader. I have too many books, too much reading, so so do I actually need the source material to get that mind-blowing state, or is it something that I could just feel for a while? Well, as, a, as an author, I say buy more books. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. However, um, you know, you can do this by exploring, too, and, and by practicing different things. But you're, you're going to find other people's ideas and other people's techniques and things like that by, you know, reading what they wrote about it or, or spoke about it and so on. I mean, you're kind of on a meetings with remarkable men sort of trip here where you're, you, you get to talk to a bunch of people who have explored unique and, and uh, uh, novel experiences. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a cool thing. For the most part, though, books are, they sort of point the way. A book can't necessarily change your consciousness. Um, eh, sometimes, uh, more with fiction, I think. <laughs> hmm. uh, right? I mean, 
uh, you know, think about how, how, like, you know, if you read something for fun, a novel or something like that, you go into this alternate <coughs> reality, into another world where there's other people and they behave like people, if it's well-written and so on. Um, you know, uh, you actually go internally and, and visualize and hear and see and feel and everything that's, that's there. So uh, um, that's a cool thing that can happen with, with language and reading and books. Um, for the most part, books that are, are about magic and so on, they can show you different, you know, different paths to take and, and different ways to, to follow them. And right now, you know, again, uh, I'm going to, you know, Sturgeon's Law does apply. 90% of everything is crap. Yes. Uh, there's an awful lot of, of books out there that are just sort of rehashed magic where they just, somebody read it somewhere, so they wrote about it again in the same way. And um, There's an awful lot of that and an awful lot of bullshit that people make up, of course. Um, but there's a but there's a, a a solid core of good magic books of people who have actually done the work and written about it, and uh, you know you can you can follow their example. We, we stand on the shoulders of giants to to get where we're going. How how um do you do you think you need and and this is gonna you know segue into our discussion of your latest book about cannabis? But uh, I'm curious when it comes to just general work with altered states, um and exploring these new frontiers of mind. Uh, do you think it's possible to get people to experience altered states that could be as profound as LSD purely through trance work? Uh, I do think it's possible. Uh, however, I think it's much easier if they've had had an experience like that. You can build on it. Uh, but but yeah, it is. It's certainly possible. And there's there's shamanic techniques and uh, you know magic techniques and so on that go back to the dawn of history where people did things like this and had very profound experiences. But again, the use of entheogens also goes back to the dawn of history too. So uh, you know. It was always a mix and match kind of thing. But yeah. Paleolithic times. Well, I guess, and and I guess that's you know also the work of Stanislav Grof, and and that's the whole point. You're not supposed sure. you do this breath work, and you're going to have a an experience that's could be transpersonal in some way. Um, yeah, it's it's all very intriguing stuff to me. Uh, you know what? I do have to ask you before we before we talk about cannabis, which I'm believe me, I'm very intrigued to hear your thoughts on uh, the use of ritual. You do talk about that a lot in your work, and I'm curious what you think the value uh, is in that because yeah, I I I've always one of the things that has at least uh, well. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just my brain doesn't like this idea that I have to know the order of the golden dawn and I have to go to these meetings and do these incantations and processes and all this stuff when I'm going, yeah, but you could just have a conversation with someone and then they could take you into a magical place in their mind. Um, so I'm curious, what do you mean by ritual? What is the importance of ritual in achieving uh, these altered states and ex- really experiencing magic? Well, in... Well, let's see. You, one, I want to make the, the distinction between ceremony and ritual. Ceremony is more what you're thinking of with the Golden Dawn, where everybody's got their costumes and they're, they're you know... That's <laughs> fair, yes. So on, right? Or uh, Freemasonry or things like that, right? Um, uh, you know, Rosicrucianism and so on. It's all, that's more ceremony, where you have a group of people who are performing r- ritual that has theatrical elements and so on. Fair, very fair, uh, however, yes. Uh, 
ritual itself, I mean, the, the basic definition of it is, is that it's something that we, it's replicable behaviors that we use to achieve a goal. And some of that, I mean, you brush your teeth every morning at the same time, that's a, it's a ritual, right? <laughs> and, and, and you know what the outcome yeah. is, and so on, right? I mean, you're, you have a, an intent in it, you want your teeth to be clean, you want to have a long-range dental health, right? It's a ritual. Um, and when we, uh, sometimes when we create ritual frames, we create the, uh, the aspects of ritual that tend to isolate a behavior, then, uh, then we're able to work on that without distraction to some extent. All right, let's say uh, you wanted to have, I, I use this example in uh, at least two of my books. Uh, let's say you want to have a, uh, a romantic experience with someone, right? What do you do? You, there is a ritual involved, right? You put on the Barry White album and you, uh, you light candles and you make a good meal and, you know, whatever. And some of it's replicable, right? Uh, you know, but there's other rituals that get to the same, same goal, too. And what it is is that you're contriving the circumstances of the moment to create a, a, an effect, in, in this case a psychological and physical effect. Uh, so when we do, uh, the, kind of, the way I do magic ritual is it's a lot uh, simpler and sparer than, than, uh, <laughs> uh, what, than, than the ceremonial kind of stuff. I mean, I don't need big groups of people and stuff, but uh, you can do some of the stuff with groups as well. And, uh, but if you, you know, you do something like as simple as think about a circle around you, at, at once you're metaphorically isolating yourself from other influences. Uh, if you imagine filling up the circle with a particular kind of element, or you actually place objects there that are focused on a certain kind of thing, a, uh, a statue of a deity, uh, the color that the deity likes, the food that the deity eats, and so on, then you're you're creating a very focused effect, right? It's similar to like uh, if you're uh, a scientist and you're working in the laboratory. Well, you're going to clean your glassware and you're going to isolate uh, the reaction in it with a certain thing and, and well-measured and so on to create a particular result. And so it's, that's a kind of similar thing in magic and even in hypnosis, that you create a ritual frame and uh, you can replicate certain aspects of it. It gives you a handle on it. It gives you a way to... Con control and contrive the circumstances a little more easily. That makes sense. Not necessarily to have the, the robes and the funny hats. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Uh, then, <laughs> then let me ask you this. When, when you say invocation uh, versus evocation, what, what do you mean? Well, uh, there's, again, it's one of these things where there's a number of different uh, interpretations of that. Uh, I typically use it to mean that invocation is that you're drawing qualities, states, and so on into you. Um, and we do that a lot in, in different contexts. Let's say you want to uh, psych yourself up, so you put your favorite song on, or, you know, on the stereo, and bam, you know, it helps you, helps you get into a particular state of mind, a particular mood, uh, and so on. That's an invocation. You're drawing some qualities into you. Um, evocation is the opposite, where you're you are taking qualities and objectifying them in a way that you can externalize them and communicate with them. So uh, let's see. Um, I'm sure people listening to this have had some one or more of these experiences. Uh, your computer is going slow, and you go, come on, why aren't you going faster? Right? <laughs> yes. I, or your, 
car doesn't start. Or there's that scene in the movie, right, where the, the, the protagonist is being chased and they get in the car and they turn the key and it goes, <laughs> right? They go, <laughs> yes. come on, baby, come on, you can do it. Right? Who are they talking to? That's a form of evocation, right? You're objectifying something external to you and communicating with it as if it's an entity. Hmm. Whether or not those are effective evocations is another story. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I'll ask my computer about that at some point. But uh. <laughs> Right, right. Do you think at the end of the day uh, that when it comes to... I mean, I guess I, I, I guess I'm going to ask you the same question back to before, which is kind of where we started this, which was um, about the way magic and hypnosis intersect for you. Um, do you think that it is a big metaphor when you say magic in, in hypnosis or is hypnosis and the work you're doing with it tapping into something that's a little beyond where just, I mean, you could be an experimental hypnosis practitioner and maybe be doing magic. Um, or is it the fact that you've put this frame on it that comes from the occult world that makes it more special? I, I, I guess in a way I'm asking, what is the difference that makes the difference here? What is the special socks right. at the intersection of NLP and hypnosis and magic with a K? Well, that's, again, that's a really good question. The, um, uh, hmm. What is the difference? The difference is essentially, I, I think, that we can, we can... Crowley thought of magic as the overarching category. He included science and hypnosis and things like that as subsets of magic. <clears throat> right? They're ways to uh, cause change in conformity with will. Uh, so uh, on one hand, I kind of like that point of view, where magic is the skill to be able to accomplish things. And people who are very effective in any of their fields are they're magicians, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we have people like in the field of hypnosis, uh, uh, Milton Erickson, he was kind of a magician. He caused crazy, miraculous things to happen in accordance with <laughs> For him. sure. And uh, um, I, I believe it was one of the... Uh, <clears throat> um, there was a, a Sufi uh, uh, sage, a Sufi teacher who was visiting the United States and who met Milton Erickson, who said something to the effect of, he's more of a Sufi than we are. <laughs> <laughs> right? and, and he would never have you know, identified himself as such. I believe he was Christian and so on. Uh, however, uh, we, could say, we could do the same thing with magic. We can say that, you know, yeah, he's, he's using the techniques. He may not call it that way, but he's using techniques and causing uh, you know, very powerful change. So... Uh, it's sort of it's it's kind of up to the individual where you want to plop that dividing line, uh, but uh, but for the most part, I kind of like the idea that that these are all sort of subsets. They're tools that we use to create our rituals and to create our our change in the world. You know, it's interesting. I feel that you could be the third person in the progression of uh, there is no such thing as hypnosis then there is everything is hypnosis and then everything is magic there is no magic hypnosis is magic magic is hypnosis <laughs> like there is I see a progression there maybe it's like um, Abbott and Costello of uh, what is hypnosis and magic uh, it is there, there, there is sort of that it's that ongoing dialogue that it's more it's more, again, it's more a way of getting you to think about these things than necessarily something to take verbatim. 
Oh, yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, okay, so look, let's then get into this. Your latest book, uh, High Magic. Now, I am. I keep asking people who come on this show uh, that have dabbled in cannabis what their what their mm, what their thoughts are, especially if they say, "Well, I no longer do it," or um, it's clear that they really do it. And and I and I get a variety of things. I've oh, it messes up the transmission, or well, it's a false version of some higher spiritual plane you could be living from, but. But it does give you access to it, so you can't dismiss it completely, all that stuff. I mean, obviously, you wrote a whole book on this um, and, and about doing cannabis safely and effectively in spiritual settings. Uh, first of all, yeah, I, I, I guess that is my question. In terms of using cannabis as a means of spiritual ascension, uh, you believe it can, it can work with that? I do, uh, and actually... Excuse me. Um, what you hear from people, people in our generation and the generation before us, so we've been indoctrinated in this anti-drug thing, and you get people trying to to separate their lives from these things. But it's almost impossible. Everybody uses drugs and consciousness-altering things of one form or another: coffee, sugar, salt, uh, you know, whatever, water, yeah. whatever. I mean. Everybody changes their consciousness throughout the day. Some things work better for some people, and some things work better for, not, for others. Uh, we do know that there's a range of different uh, types of, uh, that, uh, of people in terms of cannabis use. Um, and I'm, I'm talking specifically about mutations to the cannabinoid receptors in the body. Uh, there's people at one, at one end who cannot tolerate it at all. They get what's called hyperemesis syndrome. And they just recently discovered that that's a specific mutation. It's a very, very rare syndrome. But doctors got all afraid of it uh, recently and started to eh, you're going to get sick and start vomiting. It's an extremely rare, rare mutation that causes this in, in interaction with cannabis. Um, then you have people who have, uh, you know, it just doesn't really do much for them. And then you have people who, I guess we've got more cannabinoid receptors, <laughs> uh, and, yeah. and it does a lot for us. Now, we can actually look at this historically, and what we find, and this is actually kind of sliding into the mainstream now, is that cannabis was at the root of most of our world religion, religious traditions. Yes. And uh, to give, uh, uh, let's see, um, Albert Hoffman, more famous as the discoverer of LSD uh, and the isolator of psilocybin and so on, uh, and the, the CEO of of uh, Sandoz Laboratories, uh, he was uh, he proposed the idea that cannabis was actually the uh, the model for yoga. That it actually inspired people to create uh, techniques of meditation and so on to replicate these experiences that they were having with cannabis. Maybe when the weed supply ran out, or <laughs> during the time of year when there wasn't available, or whatever. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Um, so, and we also find, I mean, the archaeological evidence, is, it, it builds constantly. Just in the last year, they discovered in uh, Israel some, some ancient altars from biblical times. And what the hell was on the altars? <laughs> right. Interesting. And uh, uh, so, 
some of the people like uh, Chris Bennett, who wrote Lieber 420 and so on, um, they were proposing this for years, that, that uh, Judeo-Christian religions were, uh, arose out of a cannabis cult. And now we're actually finding the, the archaeological evidence that supports that. And it's, you know, uh, it's coming around. The, uh, around that same time, in biblical times, say, going back uh, as early as uh, 1000 B.C. or so on, um, you had uh, people the, like the Indo-Europeans and the Thracians and the Scythians and so on who were uh, using the Soma and Haoma sacraments, which were the main sacrament, the main religion of the ancient world was the Soma sacrament. And there's been just debate over, over the years of what it actually was. And uh, R. Gordon Wasson in the 60s proposed that it was the mushroom Amanita muscaria. However, in recent years, we have made some archaeological discoveries, and hey, guess what it was? <laughs> it was kind wow. of uh, sometimes mixed with uh, the ephedra herb or with opium. Wow. Uh, um, I, I document a little bit of this in, uh, in High Magic. I, I didn't want to uh, reinvent the wheel, as it were, uh, that, uh, because you have other authors like, like Chris Bennett, uh, aforementioned, who's, who's written just massive volumes on this stuff, just incredibly well-researched uh, stuff. Uh, the, one, the one book of his uh, that really points out the ancient origins of all of our religions is uh, called The Soma Solution. Oh, interesting. When, and Chris praises your book. I mean, he says it's an excellent and accessible introduction to the historical side of cannabis and the magical tradition. So, I mean, it's still, you, you're clearly contributed, you've clearly contributed something to this. Yeah, so, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, again, so we, so we do see that many of our ancient traditions, actually most of them, had cannabis at the root. In fact, our civilization probably wouldn't be what it is now without uh, cannabis in the history. Um, uh, again, the, the, the Scythians, uh, the Indo-Europeans and the Scythians, who were uh, at the root of all of European culture, the Scythians... They had the largest empire in history that ranged from uh, India at one end to the Celtic Islands at the other uh, and down into the Middle East and into Africa. Huge empire. And, uh, and they basically, their whole civilization was based on cannabis. Uh, they were among uh, the Indo-Europeans before them and the Scythians were, they were among the first peoples to tame horses and to use wheeled vehicles. And uh, the and so they were able to actually spread the, the soma sacrament throughout the world at that point. Uh, however, you got to you got to remember that taming horses requires something very special. What do you think? <laughs> uh, I, what do you use? What do you use to tame a horse? <laughs> if there was a horse in front of you right now, and it was wild, a wild horse, and you wanted to tame it, what would you do? I mean, I would give it a, a sugar cube as my first thought. <laughs> well, there you go. That's a, that's a good one. Well, what you need is rope. <laughs> okay. You need rope to horses. Yes. Right? you got to yes. catch them. You have to, you have to uh, make reins and leads and tie them up and things like that. You cannot tame horses without cannabis. That's, that's hmm. the rope or cannabis. It was hemp. So, Interesting. So hand, right? Uh, so on one hand, you have... The, the hemp, which enabled them to tame the horses, and then the horses, which enabled them to 
take the hemp all over the world. Uh, so uh, interesting stuff. And Do you uh, think at well, one point everybody was just a lot higher? <laughs> That'd be nice. It'd be nice. Maybe we're getting back to that. Uh, we just legalized here in New York, and uh, uh, we haven't opened the shops yet. But uh, I, I do notice there's a more in the places where it is legal, Colorado, California, and so on. There's a more open attitude to it, and people are a little, you know, a little easier about it, and, and getting high more <laughs> freely, as it were. So uh, <clears throat> um, maybe we'll get there. I do think at some point in history. Uh, yeah, maybe uh, if you were a Scythian or, a, or an Indo-European, yeah. Uh, the archaeological evidence from the Scythians, they were, the Scythian rulers were buried with pounds of primo weed. The, the, uh, we, we find evidence that they had, they invented the vaporizer. They had these huge vaporizers uh, where you would put basically cannabis tops on some, some hot rocks and, uh, and go into a little tent and breathe the fumes. Oh. And they also had like like more personal devices that, you know, what sort of like pipes uh, that people would use. So this is all so, over the world. Yeah. Uh, so this was, this was throughout their culture, and they basically, at some point or another, they started to settle down. Uh, so uh, an awful lot of us, if you have European ancestry or uh, Indian ancestry or something, you probably have some Scythian ancestry in you. It's, it's got to be pretty common considering how large their empire was. Yes, yes. So wait a minute. Okay, this is what I'm wondering then. In terms of the stuff that people say about it um, being a false connection to a to a higher to a higher realm of uh, of living. Uh, wait, I, I'm trying to put this in a. Hmm, what's the best way to put this? Well, I think it's because. I think, I think some of that was. Some of that was motivated some years ago when various gurus and so on were trying to be a little bit more accepted into American society. So they hmm. kind of adopt the drugs are bad and K kind of attitude to that people wouldn't go, oh, look, it's a drug caller. They're all stoned hippies or, you know, whatever it is. And uh, uh, so there's some of that, definitely, that through the, through the 1950s, through the 1990s and so on, an awful lot of that. That, that religious leaders and even, uh, even occult organizations uh, kind of backed off from the use of cannabis and other drugs uh, as a way of being a little bit more politically and socially palatable. Why do you think it, why do you think it opens up the channel? Ah, all right. Now, that's very interesting. <laughs> I actually do go into the science of that in, in High Magic. Uh, oh, great. Uh, we're going to link to that for everybody listening because it's uh, it's definitely something I want to read too. All right, the uh, the endocannabinoid system, the, the system of receptor sites for cannabis, it's the most widespread system of receptor sites in your body. It's more important to your system than the endocrine system, and so on. It controls. It's the master switches to an awful lot of that. It's also master switches to the way that your brain creates new neural pathways. The, the release of the endocannabinoids, the cannabinoids, the chemicals that are like THC that uh, your body naturally produces are what makes the difference between whether a neural pathway is strengthened or eliminated. And so your body secretes these depending on whether or not uh, that is so in terms of developing new neural pathways, having new experiences, 
new cognitive leaps, uh, creativity, and so on. We, we actually do see a very strong, uh, you know, neurological pathway for this. Right? It's, it's there, and, and this is in the science, and there's a lot of good research behind it. Um, <coughs> we also do have uh, an awful lot of mystical phenomena that are not very well studied. <coughs> uh, mystical experiences are not very well studied. There's a few people, um, Andrew Newberg, for instance, who's a, who studies neurotheology, how uh, spiritual experiences happen in the brain and so on. Um, uh, but a lot of these things, Kundalini, for instance, not very well studied. Right? But also, but a widespread phenomenon throughout the world, reported everywhere if you go online now. There's support groups for people with Kundalini experiences. Um, what is it, actually? Um, yeah. it, seems, uh, it seems very similar to some uh, psychedelic experiences that people happen, uh, particularly things like DMT or ketamine. And <clears throat> uh, there's a, a particular neural pathway that happens is the NMDA receptors. I don't want to get too technical about this, um, but those those drugs at high doses, uh, in ketamine's case, even at low doses, um, blocks the blocks glutamate at the NMDA receptors. Right? That's all you really have to need, need to know. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Sorry <laughs> for that. Um, the endocannabinoid system naturally controls. The, the, the way that your body processes those receptor sites. So, so you can actually have some of these experiences, kundalini experiences and so on, by combining cannabis with certain practices, yoga and so on. Uh, and and it, does, it does make a lot of sense from a neurophysiological point of view that, <coughs> uh, that cannabis would be sort of the gatekeeper of some of these uh, 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 interesting effects that we have. Yeah. So um, wait a minute. If someone were to pick up a joint today and just and you were say, okay, you could just smoke this and sit on your couch and order Chinese food and what all the stuff you're gonna do, or you could use this to uh, to experience another realm of reality. What is one simple thing they could do with it without knowing too much to to do that? To, to meditate. If you have, if you know some form of meditation, TM or or pranayama or yoga, chakra meditation, take a couple puffs and do your meditation. See what the difference is. That that would be the main thing I would say to people. Um, I, I, I would say don't don't try to learn meditation while you're high, but, <laughs> right. but learn it separately and then and then once you're good at it, combine and see what happens. Uh, I think most people will find it pretty interesting. Yeah, because that, that that is the thing with cannabis. I mean, people are, you know, you see people laughing at stupid stuff. Some people say, yeah, I get high and then I just, I, I get bored or I fall asleep or something like that. Um, which makes you go, oh, I mean, what is, what is this supposed to really help with? If, if this is supposed to connect us to the magical realm and these are what people are saying about it, what it does right. to them, um, you know, <laughs> how, how can you make them believe it? As with any... Uh, psychopharmacological <clears throat> uh, experience like that, set and setting, right? You, the, your expectations and your environment have an awful lot to do with that. Oh, that's uh, a so, great point, so, yeah, too. If you're just sitting on your couch and you're watching SpongeBob, right? That's a, <laughs> that's a very different experience than uh, if you, you 
go into your your meditation space and light a candle and meditate. Very different experience. Yeah. Even, even on the most prosaic level, right? even without the cannabis, that's a very different experience. I'm very interested in some of these rituals you have in this book, too. The, the talking joint, the smoke right. of excellence. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, well, look, I love the names that you've come up with these things. The talking, wait a minute, what the heck is the talking joint? Well, the, uh, the, the talking stick was a, uh, is a ritual that's used in both uh, Native American and African uh, rituals where there's a stick, and it's passed around the group, and the person who has the stick has the authority to speak. Oh. So, so talking joint is similar that you pass a joint, and the person who has the joint has, has the authority to speak. And typically, in a ritual context, what they would speak on would be their intent for the ritual and so on. So, so it's, a, it's a pretty simple thing, but, uh, yeah, but I know. I wish yeah. it was. I wish the joint talked to you. <laughs> Have you ever? Well, you do it enough, maybe the joint will start talking. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is so. I mean, I I really love this. High magic: a guide to cannabis and ritual and mysticism. Uh, it, yeah, it, you always seem to be a few steps ahead of where the culture is is moving. Um, you know, I mean, is there, obviously, I, I think, uh, cannabis is something that is so much more accepted now. I mean, it's remarkable the, the way it's become decriminalized. Uh, do you, do you, what, predict the next trend on this show before? <laughs> the next trend is that you're going to start to see, uh, some of the psychedelics, uh, some of the classical psychedelics follow suit to cannabis. Uh, psilocybin is probably going to be the next one. Uh, we already do have legal ketamine infusions uh, by prescription. Uh, there's actually a place near near me here that's a little expensive, so I'm not I'm not going to go rush over there. But uh, yes, uh, but but if you ask your doctor, you could probably go get a ketamine infusion. Uh, it's used to treat depression and pain and uh, all kinds of other things. Um, psilocybin and uh, MDMA are actually working their way through clinical trials right now. Uh, and they're really close to being FDA approved. So uh, you're going to see, see more of this coming into the culture. Uh, in terms of, like, magic and mysticism and so on, right now magic and paganism, uh, uh, pagan religions in particular, are among the fastest-growing segment of religions in the United States. Uh, so we're, we're seeing more and more people identifying themselves as pagan and as magicians and so on. So uh, we will see more of that and more of that influence on culture. Maybe the scientific influence in panpsychism uh, at, at this point is is motivated a little bit by uh, some of their cannabis or psychedelic experiences uh, and and pagan beliefs and so on of some of these people. I really want the thing that's lingered in my mind since the beginning is the dirt you have on Richard Bandler. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going, what does he know about this guy? What is the secret rituals? What was Bandler involved in? What is the magic? Richard is a, Richard's a friend, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna diss you. <laughs> uh, you don't have to. You don't have to. Fine. Yeah, look. No. <laughs> uh, but let's just say that I ran into people who knew him before NLP, and they confirmed that yes, he was practicing 
occult magic. That makes sense. That makes sense. No, I mean, it, I think that's, you know, that, that's the coolest part of all of this. And I'm so grateful for your work, Philip, because, again, it's, uh, I, look, it, it's, it's already cool hypnosis trance to me it's it's um it's a lifelong fascination of mine and it's something that i am very much dedicating my life to exploring more learning as much as possible but once it starts getting into the esoteric um which i've always felt it had the potential to uh, it just becomes that much more profound um you know i mean look what is the most magical thing you've ever experienced with hypnosis, either something you've done with a client, either a trance state you've been in. Can you give me, or maybe an example of something that has just been absolutely uh, wild and even unexplainable by rational material science? Well, I've had I've had any number of those over the years uh, exploring this stuff. Uh, I'll give you a real recent one. Uh, so I don't know if this is the most profound one or whatever, but something that happened to me last week. Um, I was at the Starwood Festival, which is in Ohio these days, and uh, uh, this was the first one post-pandemic. Uh, took some time off <laughs> last year. Uh, and I did a workshop there called Into the Unconscious Mind, where I did basically an hour-long trance induction with a group of people and uh, having them connect to the, the spirits of the land around them and the, the, the consciousness of the trees and the spirits. And people were reporting back that they, they were seeing and contacting entities like you know nature spirit kind of entities and that's a kind of a common thing that happens while i'm doing these sorts of trans inductions with people and uh you know particularly having them connect with you know phrased as the spirit of the land and so on and uh that was that was all really cool and fun and kind of expected and, and people really enjoyed it and had some profound experiences of their own um after workshop i was a little tired so i went back to my room and i i put my head down on the pillow and suddenly bam i was there was this tall skinny old guy with this super long beard in the room with me sat down on the bed and said i said who the fuck are you and it disappeared <laughs> what and and i re- i rarely have experiences like that where i'm seeing you know seeing hearing stuff like that you know out, that i know that i'm not in a trance you know deliberate trance thing and you know that it's a function of imagination and so on um very strange experience uh i do not have an explanation for it Um, that is so wild (laughs) (laughs) i usually don't i usually apparitions tend to avoid me but uh uh, i don't know why uh but uh but that one (laughs) that one had some words for me even if i couldn't understand them (laughs) <laughs> Philip H. Farber, I have so enjoyed this conversation. I, I, I definitely uh, hope to talk to you further about this and continue to do research on your work. Uh, everybody check out High Magic, A Guide to Cannabis in Ritual and Mysticism. Uh, and of course, for more of Philip's work, you can go to Meta dash magic that's magic with a k dot com uh philip thank you so much for coming on this has been amazing yeah thanks a lot this is a lot of fun i love talking about this stuff so uh thanks awesome awesome how many of you are going to get baked and meditate immediately i know you're going to 
it's all good. Do that. And then, if you enjoyed this podcast, go to meta-magic.com, support Phil H. Farber's work, and then follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts and rate the show and leave a review in your most joyful, blissed out, dropped in, totally glorious Cheech and Chong. 1977 state I'll be curious what you write or you don't have to either just listen to tomorrow's episode it's gonna be fun